Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter Kadzis and I had with Boston City Councilor Anissa Asabi-George. She is, as you almost certainly know, one of three Boston City Councilors currently running for mayor as Marty Walsh gets ready to head to Washington. It's a long convo, and we touched on a lot of topics, starting off with an in-depth comparison of Peter and Anissa's distinctive Dorchester accents. Actually, that's a great note to start on um, as we ease into this conversation. Since I am not from here, since I grew up in Minnesota, not in Massachusetts, can you two talk me through the differences between your respective Boston accents? Well, I, I mean, all I can tell you is I do remember, you know, once in the classroom. So I used to get, so I used to always get this question, where are you from, right? People ask me that all the time. And that it's really about like my identity. You know, what am I? And so they start with, where are you from? So I look at them and I know what the question is, right? And I say, Dorchester? And they're like, no, 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 like, where are you from? They mean, I'm an Arab, I'm, you know, I'm Polish, whatever. But one day I got that question in my classroom and kids would all, I taught in East Boston. So kids would ask me, you know, what are you miss? Cause I'm in East Boston. So am I Italian? Am I Latina? Am I, you know, what am I? Um, one day a kid did say, but your accent, it's so different. And I'm like, from you here in East Boston? Like that sort of struck me as just interesting. So I think even within our city, that there are certain dialects within each of our neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, native Bostonians remark to me, not only, you know, that I have a sort of classic Boston accent, but I still use certain words that I grew up with, and I'm older than you are. For example, calling trash cans the ash bins. Because my grand- I grew up with my grandmother, she referred to them as the ash bins because, you know, during the Depression and the Second World War, people's houses were heated with coal, and so ah. you put your ashes out. So it's the ash can. I yeah. mean, um, I still refer to all carbonated beverages as tonic. Right. Um, so it's not just the accent, Adam. There's also certain usages. But I, I, I'm on the, the real old geezer side of that. But I also wonder if it, it depends on your parents. Like, so both my parents, as you know, immigrated here. My mother came very young, but my dad came as an adult. But just for the record, both of you grew up in Dorchester. Yes. So I'm wondering, as a outlander uh, who's not from here, could could someone from like East Boston or Charlestown listen to the two of you and say, "Oh yeah, uh, Peter Kadzis and Anissa Sabi George are from Dorchester, clearly," or is it is it not that? Simple? No, that's what I think. That's what I was saying about my student in East Boston. Was like, "Where's your accent from?" And I'm like, "Just on the other side of the tunnel, like just in Dorchester." But they, just yeah. I remember that, and I, I've been out of the classroom now six years, but I remember that very clearly because it but was sort were, of the second leg to the where are you from. There, there are inflections in the North End in East Boston, you know, in Boston, Italo-American dialogue or dialect, if you will, that are different from, you know, the largely Irish-inflected 
sections of Dorchester. I mean, I grew up in St. Gregory's Parish. I'm St. Margaret's, down the in other end. St. Margaret's, okay. And I grew up where Galvin and Morton intersected, which was right where Irish Catholic Dorchester abutted then Jewish Mathapan. And so there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of cultural DNA encrypted in all this stuff. Absolutely, because I think that's what we saw, you know, what I maybe saw in East Boston. Or where I am, it is, where I grew up, there's a lot of Polish influence, and I'm half Polish. But also, if my father were alive today, you'd hear, you know, he was here 40 years, but you'd hear very heavy Arabic accent, certainly influenced by, he also spoke French, but then his English was Boston English. So just what, you know, what sort of soup that made was always fascinating when he would yell at us, oh, you really heard it then. <laughs> Since we're talking about roots and cultural identity, Counselor, you said that you've gotten over the years the question, where are you from, with people looking to get at your ancestry, but not wanting to ask it as directly as they might. Can you tell us and listeners how having the ancestry that you did, which is different than a lot of people who you would have grown up with in Dorchester, how did that shape the way you look at the world, either as a kid or a young adult, or, you know, maybe even to this day? No, it's a great question. And it's, you know, it's one that I get asked a lot now, especially because I'm in sort of the public space. But growing up in my neighborhood, especially as a, not so much as a Pole, you know, being Polish was much more common here. But I also didn't look Polish. So nobody ever looked at me sideways when I would say I was Polish. And I actually speak a little Polish. I'm not, not as good as I was when I was little. But I'm an Arab and my father is from Tunisia. My father He's unfortunately dead now, but he was also Muslim. So we saw his experience. I saw his experience. I'm the oldest, especially as a little girl. It was very, um, it was hard sometimes. And he um, really struggled with it. But, you know, for him, especially with his kids, he wanted us to have access to education. He worked so hard to make that happen. Um, and I think that that comes from his own experience in Tunisia. He grew up very poor, uh, one of 19 kids. Um, and, you know, when we say the village, it's the village. So it's very much um, culturally and ethnically and religiously his experiences and his, and his upbringing certainly live on with me. And I've taken a lot of that and I, you know, sort of appreciate those experiences, both the good and the bad. And I like being unique, but when I was little, especially in this neighborhood, it was hard being different. It was hard. Have, I remember on many occasions coming home from, you know, school. I went to the local grammar school, St. Margaret's, great education. And my father was Muslim. He just wanted us to have a good education. When he came to the States, it was sort of the, in the midst of busing um, when it came time to talk about schools. And my mother is Polish Catholic. So you can only imagine um, the complexities that added to their relationship and to our upbringing. But he just wanted us to go to a good school. But I'd come home crying just saying, why didn't you give me like a regular name? Why didn't you get like, and that's all I wanted. But, you know, over time, as I, you know, certainly matured and realized my own history, my own story, my own roots, the roots of my parents and my, my dad, 
um, and his family, and I've been to Tunisia a number of times and, and grateful to know my family that's there. Um, you know, I really appreciate my name. I love my name. Um, and my name actually in Arabic means, Anissa means friend to the lonely. And there were so many times as a kid, because I was different, because I had a different sort of family story um, than a lot of my friends and classmates and neighbors, um, I, I think it's more than appropriate. But now I've gotten, I wish I wore them now. I know we're, we're only on audio, but we're looking at each other via Zoom. I love things with my name on it because it's my name and it's the name my parents chose for me, which is also a great story. But, you know, it, it tells a, a bit of my story uh, for sure. And it sometimes encourages people to ask me about my story and how, how I came to be. I got to ask, and obviously we are all living and, and working in unusual times. Um, I heard some some kitchen noise. Is anyone like doing doing food prep? In the I, well, background? I mean, it's probably one of the kids grabbing something. I'm sorry about Excellent. that. Excellent. I just I wanted to announce it all clear in the house. We might have we might have heard Peter's dog earlier. You may hear our cats or my children in the near future. So just okay. We have talked with the other two declared candidates for mayor previously, Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell, your colleagues on the council. And we've asked them to talk with us about what they see as making their candidacy unique. Uh, and part of that has been biography, but there have been other things as well. You talked a little about your ancestry just now. Can you talk about what else you think sets you apart as you seek the mayor's job? I'm really excited to apply my years building a business and certainly raising a family and having four teenage boys. Um, but I also know that my time in the classroom, my 13 years being a Boston Public Schools teacher and applying that to the work of being mayor and not just in the education space is, is a, a, uh, an experience unique to me certainly will be, you know, and we talk a lot about this mayor's race and how exciting it is because we'll, we will have the first of something special when we think about the next mayor of the city of Boston, certainly possibly the first mayor, female mayor elected, possibly the first, you know, um, Asian American, possibly the first black American, and we certainly will have uh, in our acting mayor that, the first Arab mayor, the first BPS teacher mayor, the first, like, so it's an exciting time here in the city of Boston, and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to participate in this. And I look forward to taking those experiences in the classroom and building a business and being a community member uh, and applying that to the, the work of being mayor. I don't think you described what your business actually is. I own, a, I own the Stitch House in Dorchester, which is a great uh, local yarn shop that sells yarn and fabric and teaches, not right now though, but we do teach knitting and sewing and it's a great, you know, it's a, it's a great specialty business, specialty retail shop, but to me it's also been a great gift of creating a different type of community. I'm all about building community and within the fiber arts community to have created something that I think is pretty neat, pretty special has been very cool. This is uh, outside of my usual area of expertise, but secondhand, I know several women who would endorse that notion. I love it. I love it. Well, when I first ran for city council, I was sitting in my shop, and you know, you know, one of the first things you do is you decide what your campaign colors are going to be. So I was like going back and forth, colors, colors, and I'm sitting in my shop, which is that same hot pink. 
I was like, oh, well, this works for the stitch hose. This should work for me. So that's where the hot pink came from. Ah. And when we were working on literature for door knocking and mailing and stuff like that, um, I wanted to put, like, owner of the stitch hose. And a campaign advisor who was a man said, why, like, why would you add that? Why wouldn't you just put business owner? I was like, well, no, because some people know the stitch house and the fiber arts community is a tight community. And, you know, along, along the way, people be like, yeah, no, no, Anissa, I'm voting for you. You know, you're great. I like your ideas, whatever it is. And some people be like, I love your shop. I'm voting for you. <laughs> and it was just, it's sort of a funny community that's been created in um, the fiber arts community. Can you talk us through and listeners through a little more of, of what you taught when you were a teacher? Yeah, sure. So I was at East Boston High School for 13 years. I'm really proud of, of that time in the classroom and grateful that I had the, the, the opportunity to meet hundreds, if not thousands. I Actually, one day I counted how many kids I probably taught. But to have met all of these kids, many from East Boston, but from across the city, to learn from them, to hear about their experiences in the city, uh, but to do it through an academic class. I taught mostly juniors and seniors. I was the elective teacher. My certification is in social studies, but I had the opportunity to teach a health professions class, an entrepreneurship class. I taught economics and I taught, you know, just everything and anything. Um, and I was always grateful to change up the, the class I was teaching because it gave me an opportunity to connect with my kids, with my students in a different way. And, and especially when MCAS became a very serious reality for so many of our kids. Teaching electives was an opportunity for my students to thrive in a different way and to get to know them in a different way, for them to have a relief a little bit and enjoy a subject matter that wasn't so high stakes as English is, as math is. And I also, at the same time, learned to appreciate that the, the pressure that our language arts arts teachers have, the pressure that our math teachers have, the pressure that our Spanish and language teachers have, because it's all associated with a particular test, where when I had kids in my classroom, we just were able to have a different experience. But I taught one of the courses was entrepreneurship, and you know many of our students at East Boston High School are first-generation Americans like me. Uh, many of them are newcomers, uh, but one thing I learned from our kids in Boston, and I'm a Boston kid, went to Boston Public Schools, Boston Tech for high school. One thing I learned from our kids is they want, they do want to thrive and succeed and building their own business, especially when we think about that first generation um, student. It's just, it becomes a part of building their own lives and, and owning their own future. And the curriculum I used in the classroom is the curriculum, I was teaching this class, I go, like, I want to open my own business and I've got this curriculum. So I did it alongside my students and, and for a few years I took my kids we would go on field trips and one of our things was we'd go see the back of the house like when you open your business when you think about building a business come see one in action so I was able to live that uh, out loud with my kids and I really it was a, it was a thrill. Since we're talking about education counselor um, I detect I can't say detect <laughs> face to face, but I detect on social media that there's a real and perhaps growing desire to return Boston to an elected school committee. Um, and I, I wonder with, you know, Mayor Walsh ready to go to Washington, D.C., is there anyone left 
who has a stake in the appointed school committee. So let me consider that two questions. With Walsh gone, does anyone have a stake in the appointed school committee? And um, what, if anything, do you make of the move on some people's part to return to an elected school committee? So I'll answer that question in two parts. One, I have a stake in our Boston School Committee. Our families have a stake in our Boston School Committee. Our kids, most importantly, have a stake in our school committee, our teachers, our educators, anyone interested or concerned in uh, the education of our kids across the district have a stake in our Boston School Committee. I've been very public and on the record that I believe in an appointed body. I think an elected body becomes too overly political. I'm a politician. I'm on an elected body. I want to be the leader of this city. I want to be mayor. And I believe as mayor, an appointed school committee is one that allows for the responsibility to rest at the mayor's feet, and I want that responsibility. I want that burden. I want to lead our schools as mayor of the city of Boston. I also want to say I've got some real ideas about how I think an, a redesigned, a reimagined appointed school committee could really work both for our kids, for our families, and for the general public um, who wants greater accountability of that school committee. Would you be willing right now to share some of those ideas? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Go ahead. There's no idea worth... Listen, if you've got a good idea, you don't save it till after you become mayor. I want good ideas enacted today. And we, as mayor, as a candidate for mayor, um, when I've had meetings, when I've had town halls, when I've had discussions, and something can be done today or, you know, tomorrow, um, it has to happen. And, and anyway, what I would like to see is a nine-member body. I actually don't care if it's seven or 11. That's, that doesn't matter to me. And model, model it off of the Community Preservation Committee. Five appointed by the mayor, four appointed in very direct partnership with the Boston City Council. It's what I've been working towards as a city councilor. And those five appointed by the mayor represent certain interests. The student who should have a right to vote, I filed for that home rule petition. An educator, why shouldn't an educator sit on the Boston School Committee, a parent for sure, right? Um, colleges, a larger business interest, they have a vested interest in the success of our schools. And then four, you know, at-large members appointed by the school the uh, city council. And similar to how we did it with the community preservation process, there's a very public interview process where anyone interested in one of those four sort of open or at-large seats applies through public application. And what we did on the city council was we had a working group select 16 candidates from that pool of just over 100. We interviewed those 16 in public view, on camera, by the city council uh, working committee for the community preservation work. And the public could be present. Interviewed the 16, we recommended four to the full body in which we had another formal hearing with those four allowing for public testimony, allowing for dialogue and, and question, and those four to present themselves before we sent those names over to the mayor. It's a way to engage the city council, which I think should be more engaged in the work of the mayor's office. And it's also a way to make sure that the authority and the responsibility still lie with the mayor. An elected school committee has too many problems. I lived, my political desires came from my experience as a high school student here in Boston, as a member of the Boston Student Advisory Council, 
fighting the Flint administration, trying to shut down schools and defund schools. This is too important to leave to sort of political chance. No, and that's a very direct, I appreciate your candor. Counselor, it strikes me that one of the great failures of both the Menino and the, the Walsh appointed school committees isn't the concept, it's the execution, in that the school committee tends to vote as a block. The mayor more or less dictates how they vote. And by the way, I don't believe anyone who says he doesn't. Um, I can imagine your model getting off to a good start, but after a while, how can any mayor, let's put you, yourself aside, not uh, allow people they have appointed to exercise their own personal judgment? No, I think it's really important for any mayor to do that, and I would um, I'd follow suit. And I do think, and because it's in partnership, in such a direct partnership with the city council, it does create a different opportunity for more independent think, for more engagement by different um, different types of members representing sort of very specific constituencies and very specific interests. I will back up though just for a moment and say, Peter, I think it's really important to note that our Boston School Committee works really hard and certainly there's been some challenges and um, uh, conflict and um, some troubling things that have happened through this Boston School Committee. There always will be with any body of people. Um, we just have to do our very best to minimize it because the stakes are so high when it comes to educating educating our kids. I wanted to get you to talk a little more about ideas you have for changing BPS, broadly speaking. You alluded to those. You talked about your vision for the, the school committee, but what are some of your big ideas that you'd like to implement if you become mayor in terms of changing the way Boston public schools work? For me, it's both about the broad changes, but also my ability because of my years in the classroom and because of my work as education chair on the city council, that I can do the broad stuff, but I can also very easily get into the weeds. And, and the weeds is where I actually prefer to be. But for me, it's about making sure that, you know, I've said this in a number of my town halls, if there are five things on my list to do in my first 100 days in office, because that's the measurement we give every elected official in a new position, I don't know what four of them are yet today to articulate and promise that, but one of them is Madison Park Vocational Technical High School. Madison Park has got to be turned around in a way that every family is proud to send their kid to that school, that families are knocking down the doors to get into. It should be the gem of our system. I went to Boston Technical High School. I was both on a sort of the, the college track, but also participated in some um, hands-on classes. I took sheet metal. My mailbox is the mailbox I made in high school. I took electronics. I took drafting and architecture and computer science. It's so important to expose our kids to many, many opportunities. And Madison is just on this cusp and it needs a push and it needs a mayor to lead that effort to make sure that it has the right partners, whether it's the construction trades, that it has the right partners in biotech, that it has the right partners in culinary arts, because we know we've got an award-winning award win culinary arts program over there. There is so much that we're just missing with Madison Park and I cannot wait to lead this city 
and affect that change in a real way. But also in education. Just as an aside, mm. sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to mention that. So I, I live in the suburbs. I live in Swampscott. And I remember my older daughter, when Essex Tech came through Swampscott Middle School to make their pitch for students, my older daughter and I think a bunch of her friends were like, we've got to go to Essex Tech. She, my, my kid didn't end up doing it, but they were so excited about the pitch that they saw. And, you know, I know friends of hers who have gone and seem to like it a lot. So No, uh, I've spent a lot of my time on the council meeting with other uh, school leaders in other parts of our state. They have wait lists. They've got kids from other communities paying to go. You know, that, that should be Madison Park, not vacant seats, not, op- not endless capacity to add more kids. But, you know, so it's, it's really unfortunate because so many communities, almost every other community in our Commonwealth has an opportunity to send their kid to a first-class vocational technical education. We're missing it, and we have to do better. We have to do better. But in other Sorry places, to interrupt you. So that's ahead. one no, no, of five. No, no, that's yeah. fine. And I could talk about this for hours, so I'm happy to come on and on and on again. But it's the special education services, and we talk a lot about the school-to-prison pipeline. It goes right through our sub-separate classrooms across our district, K to 12. We have an over-representation of black and brown boys in particular in sub-separate classrooms. It is a place that we are leading in nationally. We have to flip that upside down. Um, We need to have inclusion in our schools and we need inclusion done right. Not just saying that we're doing inclusion, but making sure that we, we have teachers multiple teachers with multiple licenses working in inclusion classrooms so that it is truly done right. We need to make sure that literacy is taught in a real way that our kids, especially in early education, early years through third grade, we should be focused on literacy because our fourth grade MCAS scores, and there's problems with MCAS, right? And there's certainly problems with MCAS during COVID, but we should be doubling down, if not tripling down on the resources we're giving our kids and the support we're giving our educators and our families with those early literacy efforts. That is how we change the trajectory of our students and their ability to succeed in high school and in college and in life and in work. It's what happens in those earliest years that's critical. Council, I'd like to switch. These, this talk about education, by the way, has been terrific. And as the parent of three boys who graduated from the Boston Public Schools and the son of a man who went to Boston Trade, was a factory worker, then went to college nights and became a vocational teacher, what you say makes a lot of sense. But let's switch to um, pure politics. Because education isn't purely political enough? uh, It is ripe with political overtones. But no, I'm talking about voters. As I look at the race right now, and there's a long, long campaign, and I should remind our listeners that campaigns are about changing people's minds or persuading them that you, the candidate, are the one. But with that in mind, it seems to me that Councillor Wu and you were the two top vote-getters in the at-large city council races. So those are political facts. Andrea Campbell is a district councilor, so has less exposure around the city. Um, And ditto the soon-to-be acting mayor, Kim Janey, who I'm not asking you to comment on, but I'm assuming will be running. Maybe I'm wrong. But given the political terrain as it exists just at this moment, strategically, 
how do you go about getting the votes you need to get to City Hall? So a couple of things. One, I'm excited about this transition and the opportunity for Council President Janey to be in the acting mayor role and will support her through this transition. Our city is too important to not be supportive during this period of transition, which, which may happen very soon. Um, I will say as an at-large counselor, as someone who represents the entire city of Boston, uh, I have been very present in our communities. I am very pre present in sort of the, the more traditional civic circles, as well as meeting our residents, our neighbors, uh, where they are in the non-traditional circles. And I'm very proud of my reputation of being very much present across our city. The, the most direct route to the mayor's office, thinking politically or strategically from a campaign perspective, is meeting as many voters as possible and sharing my story, certainly sharing my hopes and dreams as, you know, I want to be your mayor, but being able to say, as a city councilor, I have achieved this, this, and this, and as your mayor, I will continue to work hard for you. I will continue to represent you. I will continue to engage with you. I will continue to be accountable and responsive and responsible uh, to the voters, to the residents across the city of Boston. So for me, the most direct route is earning more votes than anyone else that's also running for mayor um, and leaning on my citywide organization, uh, my strong base of support here in Dorchester, but the, the strong bases I've developed across the city of Boston uh, through my work as an at-large counselor. So when you're making that pitch, what are the big achievements on the council that you point to? You know, for me, it's absolutely elevating uh, the conversation around our schools. And, and schools is an easy one to sort of bring to the forefront, but the, the conversations and the work that we've done around Madison Park to date, and there's a great, great deal more work to do when it comes to Madison Park. The work that we've done around special education and talking about some of our students who are dealing with dyslexia in particular and recognizing the connection to serving those students around our work, especially for literacy. It's the work around high school redesign and the public and um, the external and internal conversations we've had around those topics. But what I'm most proud, of, proud about is the, the uplifting of the work around, or the need to do more work around access to mental health, both in our schools and in our community. Um, and it's also about family homelessness and the work that I've been able to do to end family homelessness here in the city of Boston. I've pushed both my council colleagues and the mayor on family homelessness. I've pushed my council colleagues and the mayor on creating better access to mental health services. And we still have so much more work to do in that place. I've pushed my colleagues on the council and the mayor and the school department and have worked in partnership with all of these people to make sure that we have a full-time nurse in every one of our school buildings. That's my work that I'm really proud of. And you know, my reputation of, of showing up, having the important conversations, but then getting to work is a reputation I'm really very proud of. And during this run, you know, for mayor to serve as the leader of this city, um, I, can't be, I can't be too shy to not share that out loud. Let me ask you a family-related question. Um, am I correct that your husband is a developer? My husband is a builder here in the city a of builder. Boston. Okay. He is a builder, yes. If you were to be elected, how would you insulate both your husband's business and your political operation 
from potential conflicts of interest? Well, you know, as you know, um, and as you noted, my husband is a builder, and we've talked a lot about this. And if I'm elected mayor, which I hope to be, my husband won't appear before the ZBA or the BPDA, and we will work every day to make sure that there is never a conflict. I've done that work as a city councilor, and yep. as an at-large city councilor, it's really important to isolate and insulate myself, um, but also it's important to talk about the bigger issues that, that are, you know, create some of these concerns. We need more transparency in government. We need more accountability in government. We need to make sure that we're approaching zoning reform fully aware of the challenges that are faced on all sides. What do you see those zoning reform changes, uh, challenges as yeah. being? Well, I'm a former Civic Association president. I was uh, the president of the Columbia Savin Hill Civic Association, one of the city's largest. And as a civic leader, as a neighbor, you know, zoning, zoning code needs to be predictable. Uh, but it also needs to be, be predictable for everybody that's interested because it creates uh, an irregular inflation of potential property values and it creates a lot of conflict and animosity between, between neighbors, for example. Uh, we need to make sure that it is a predictable process, that it's a transparent process, that timelines are set both for community and developer uh, because it's, that's where the conflict comes from is there's so much uncertainty in the process. Anissa Asabi-George, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? We need to reopen our local economy. We've got to reopen businesses, and, and our business community is suffering day in and day out. And I've got, you know, certainly my challenges with my business, but, you know, we've got businesses that are feeding families. We have businesses that are, you know, and, and I'm, I, my heart breaks for some of these mom and pop shops that just are having such a hard time. They may have little ones at home doing school virtually. They may have elderly parents that they're worried about and caring for. If sickness has touched their families, COVID or not, it can break a family. And, you know, I just, I really worry about um, how long it's going to take us to get to a point where we're reopening. And that all de that depends on so many different factors. That certainly de depends on our success, especially over the next few weeks, to make sure vaccine rollout is done well. And, and I think that we've missed an opportunity, or we're missing, because we can still correct it, that we're missing an opportunity to connect with our community health centers. You know, they are in our neighborhoods. They have relationships with some of our most vulnerable residents, whether they are, you know, our communities of color, whether they are elderly, whether they are young. Uh, they have those relationships and they need to be utilized during this vaccine rollout. And I'm just really disappointed that we haven't, as a, as a state, um, done a better job being connected to our community health centers. And then it's about the work to reopen, which seasonally this will help us, but we've got to get to the other side. So then we can start talking about having some sort of sustained recovery. And then what I hope for in Boston is a rebirth of Boston. And that Boston, you know, I think this is maybe President Biden saying, but like, we've got to build Boston back better. And, you know, we have such an opportunity to do things different too on the other side because we don't want to go back to that normal. The old normal wasn't working. And we see that so many more people see that now. And so through this rebuilding phase, Boston can truly be that beacon that we know it can be. And Boston can do this. And I'm so excited to have the opportunity to lead Boston through that period of time. 
my assumption is that your interest in being mayor is not a new thing. That it's something that you've had on your mind in Since some I was way, in high school, actually. for a while. I know my mother had. There was my like senior. There was an the senior newspaper. There was an article, and I'd always sort of like hide it a little bit from Mayor Walsh because I, you know, by the way, Mayor, someday I want to be mayor. But it's in my like senior exit interview, whatever. What do you want to be when you grow up? The mayor of the city of Boston. You called your shot. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. So, like 15, so what I wanted to ask you about is, is timing, because you're running at this point against two other women who decided they were going to jump in before we knew that Mayor Walsh was going to be heading to D.C. You took a different path. Can you talk to us about how you thought that through I'd love to know if you were thinking about jumping in and potentially running against Mayor Walsh. And I'd also love to know, my assumption is that a lot of people who, unlike me, are going to be voting in the mayoral election may have drawn a conclusion that uh, that you think more highly of Mayor Walsh's tenure than Councilors Wu and Campbell because you waited to announce your run until a little bit later. But maybe they're wrong about that. So I've thrown like five things at you there. Love to hear your thoughts. All right. So I've wanted to be mayor since I was probably 15, 16 years old. And I wanted to be mayor because at this point, because I know that I can do this work. And especially my time on the city council, my record on the city council, my work as a small business owner, my work in the classroom, all of those things will help me be a better mayor for the city of Boston. But it also goes back to when I was 15, 16 years old, and my, I expressed that to my dad, and my father said, an Arab girl with an Arab name will never be mayor of this city. So those of you with daughters listening, you know, there's different ways that we motivate people to achieve and uh, reach for the stars. But I also grew up with Mayor Walsh. Marty and I grew up on the same street. We've known each other for a long time. He's a few years older than me, but we've known each other for a long time. And when we think back to Peter's question about political strategy, uh, there's also a strategic decision to be made. I was not going to run against Mayor Walsh. I have enjoyed these last five years on the city council, an opportunity to partner with him on some really great things. And because of that relationship, I've been able to be really productive in my role as an at-large city councilor. I've been able to push him, hold him accountable, in a different way than some of my colleagues have been able to. And I've also been able to work in partnership and be included in some of the work around our schools, some of the conversations around helping our locally owned businesses. Some of the, you know, so for me, um, that partnership was really important and critical to both his success and my success as a city councilor. I'm gonna miss him. Um, I'm gonna miss that partnership. And I look forward to being mayor of this city and partnering with our city council uh, next year, and our other electeds in, in other offices, because I do believe that government is a team sport. I actually have a hashtag, government is a team sport. Although I want to lead this city and be the leader of this city, I think it's really important that we do this work in partnership. It is the only way to make the progress that we need to as a city. And I imagine the benefits we'll be able to reap having Mayor Walsh as Secretary Walsh in D.C., We've got a real opportunity to change the course, especially when we think about economic opportunity and helping our residents across the city access that opportunity, especially as it relates to workforce development here in the city of Boston. Councillor Anissa Asabi-George, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Really enjoyed it. No, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for coming. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. 
Thanks to Anissa Asabi-George for taking the time to talk with me and Peter, and to you for listening. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us if you have a second. And please talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. We'll talk to you again soon. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.